Hello and welcome to Business Without with me, Dominic Frisby. And Ori Clark is perhaps the only single-branded multi-discipline practice in the UK. Now, I'll explain what that means. Basically, it means they're a legal and an accountancy firm. And Andy Ori is partner. And Andy made the observation that so many of the firm's clients, so many of his and his partner's clients, are doing such fantastically interesting things. And he wanted to find a means to share these people and these things with a wider audience. And the means uh, which he arrived at is this podcast. So, Andy, hello. Who have we got on the show today? And what are we going to be talking about? Thank you, Dominic. I have no idea what we'll be talking about, but uh, Angus Donaldson has joined us, uh, who I've known uh, quite a long time. He's a serial entrepreneur, successfully. Um, and he's also a trustee. He's also a non-exec. Um, he does a few a few different things of interest. And he's a Scot, I guess. He's, uh, I he's am a, indeed. You know. Good stuff. Well, we, I, we can find out. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what a trustee is. So I, we, we can find out about that in a second. But tell us, uh, Angus, what, what are you doing at the moment? I've got two principal things I'm involved with at the moment. One's a marketing agency called Ghost, which I led the buyout of from Vice Media, which is a fascinating little agency which only really does social media. So shaping adverts for, used to be celebrities and personalities, but uh, we've branched it now into brands. Brands are, shall we say, better at paying their bills on time than certain celebrities. Uh, And that's a great little business. And otherwise, I've got involved with uh, the creation and startup of a new non-bank lending company, which is a long way from the world of social media. But what it's doing is providing funding to house builders who, given the changes in banking regulations, can't really get it anymore. Uh, The lifeblood of this country and the big shortage in housing has always depended on smaller developers coming and doing their own developments. Uh, That stopped that they found it very hard to get funding post the financial crisis. So we're attempting to plug that gap and provide funding for them. Very good. The most interesting thing that you were, all of that was interesting, but the, the, the standout line for me was that celebrities don't pay yes, their bills on time. <laughs> they get so much stuff for free. They're not used to anyone sending them a bill. I mean, do, they, is it, do you think it's deliberate? Like you, I'm too important to pay bills like this, or I think I think and celebrities are often entertainers, sportsmen. You know, and there's there's something about those people. They're highly intelligent, but they're probably a little bit narcissistic, a little bit complex. You know, do you uh, act for a lot of celebrities? I, I no, I don't act for a lot. Of, I act for a lot. I uh, deal with a lot of people in entertainment or as a whole, you know. And actually, if you take entrepreneurs, like a good entrepreneur, they're I'm actually a not, di- I they're not bills that on time. dissimilar. There's a sort of... Uh, what's I said, I'm a celebrity and I always pay my bills on time. <laughs> I mustn't be too unfair, actually. They've uh, we, We've only had one one bad debt. Uh, generally, they all they all pay very well. Uh, the, the brands, actually. The brands can be can be a bit slow in paying as well, but uh, they is... always get round to it. We've, uh, yeah, I'm being a bit unfair. We've only I mean, had one bad with, debt. When you say brands, if it's big brands, I, I, I have a bugbear and it's something that really pisses me off, is that every year they talk to these companies on Radio 4 and things and no one takes them to task that they choose their credit terms, that they are whoever, the biggest 
brand in the world that probably I shouldn't name, and they just think, well, we'll have 90 days credit. I mean, that's insane. Like any normal business in small and medium sector, you can't say to someone 90 days credit. They would be like, that's a contract. That's a negotiation. That's like, look, I need additional credit mm -hmm. terms. But the big brands, the, the the it should be a law because they have the power to flaunt it. You know, their, their buying power is such that they get to set the rules. And this is particularly true of the supermarkets. But there should be a law to say, once you're this big, I mean, once you're listed, once you're, you know, you have to pay everyone within 30 days. Certainly the bigger the company, I guess it's the cost of dealing with them. They say, these are our terms. If you want our contract, well, other people want the same contract. This is how we deal. But isn't law sometimes, we all want laissez, well, we all want, most businesses want a laissez-faire approach, but there are some edges to the law. And I think the the actual feeling of the UK is that it's okay if you're, you know, a, a small businessman, and I mean very small, a plumber or whatever, but once you're big, you've got to follow these rules correctly, is my feeling. I mean, it, if, we, if we extend that to what's, you know, when you say that the banks, the banks won't provide debt, I mean, it's interesting to hear that the 2008, before there, therefore, they were willing to provide enough finance, were they, in, in, in to do this sort of small house builder. Yeah, so, Self-certified loans and... Yeah, it's a wee bit complicated, but post the financial crisis, quite rightly, the banks were under greater scrutiny for what loans were on their books. And just the problem for a bank is the amount of work that needs to be done for a two, three, four, five, ten million pound loan is about the same as probably would need to be done for a 500 or 100, 200 million pound loan these days. So given the amount of work involved they'll tend to favour doing it for the two, three hundred million pound loan. So consequently, the smaller developers just can't get the credit. And the banks themselves, you know, to do with the complexities of solvency ratios and things like that, they have to make a, they have to make a reserve on their balance sheet against each loan. Well, obviously, the loan against a mortgage is relatively small because people on, on the whole pay their mortgages if they possibly can. But the experience during the financial downturn was a lot of developers got into trouble. So they have to reserve far more against a development loan. Therefore, from their point of view, it's just a bit capital inefficient to make those loans. Hence, the opportunity has, has arisen. But it's an important part of the area because, you know, we are, you know, and there's an awful lot of housing need in this country and it won't happen unless the developers can get credit to do it. I've heard that story not just from you, Liam Halligan, who's a friend of mine, has just written a book about it. I've heard it from so many different sources. And it means that building now has become the preserve of maybe a little bit more than a handful of large building companies per sim. And because they're the only ones who can access the finance. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely right, Dominic. The, the, the big three, four house builders are building more and more of the market. They're making tremendous profits, getting huge bonuses, as we you know, saw last year. And the, the, the smaller developers been left out in the cold a wee bit. We, uh, and, and to echo that point, you know, we're seeing all this slight death of the high street. Uh, and But the high street's going to die if the only development being done is 200 houses on the outskirts of town. If you want the Inner, inner towns and a bit more life in your high streets, then you need to build houses closer to it. And that comes oh, from smaller development. Because Do you think we need to save the high street? Because I find we're just going through a metamorphosis and Slough being the town off, of, you know, that high street is just crack converters and, you know, 
God knows now, really. But are we not just, they're all going to turn into restaurants. Should we be saving the high street? Well, I think so. If people personally, yes, I think, you know, you need a centralised place where people go to, otherwise you're going to lose, you, you'll lose the restaurant business and you'll lose the pub business and you'll lose the hospitality businesses. You know, we're, we're a sociable species. We do like to go where other people are. So I think, uh, I think but I, my vision really of the important. high street, the future is just retail. And it's not retail, sorry, it's just entertainment. It's just restaurants. Like, it's not my vision. It's like, I can see that's basically where we're going to end up. Unless it moves more towards lifestyle. Unless it moves more towards the fact that we do want to be where other people are. And actually, if everyone just lives in their siloed house and doesn't interact with people, then that's a slightly Orwellian future. But uh, I I personally think the high street's incredibly important. And I think the government deep down thinks the high street's very important as well. Yeah, I think if you look at... uh the success of the farmer's market over the Mm. last 10 years. You know, farmer's markets, they're not cheap, but they're evidence. (laughs) They really aren't. For what you get, they're not cheap. cheap. Occasionally you get a deal on raspberries, but that's about it. But the, the, they are, you know, their tremendous success is evidence of the fact that people like to go to a place, touch the goods, eat, buy stuff and do that. And it, they are great, you know, communal things. And, you know, I speak to someone who maybe not so much anymore, but in my slightly younger days, at some point I've been to just about every town centre in the country to do, because there's just gigs, comedy gigs in every town in the country. And, oh my God, they're all the same. And so you just go and everywhere's got, you know, M&S. Uh, yeah, all those shops and, and down market versions. And so they all lose their individual character, even if you know, those towns emerged and they were all quite different because, you know, they all emerged without government planning or anything. They arrived, uh, you know, emerged according to local needs and local circumstances. And, you know, the most beautiful towns in the country are all a bit higgledy-piggledy. Well, for- and, 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 and you know, that, that wonderful character has just been blandified yes, into, into existence. And therefore we're not attached to it. Yeah. And therefore we may as well be online looking at it. Yeah, and you go to places like, you know, the Arndale Centre in Manchester and you know, or Elephant and Castle just up the road here. Yeah. I mean, how grim, yeah. you know. That... Elephant's been holding the title for a long <laughs> oh, time. Oh, it's extraordinary. <laughs> it's, but, yeah. uh, you know. Um, but, I mean, a, a different part of your life, I guess, when we talk about entertainment and restaurants and the high street now is, is, is of course, you, 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 your business ghost is responsible for a lot of the sort of promotion, the social media promotion of those things. Is it, I mean, that would be good for you if the high street ended up full of restaurants. That's more and more restaurants or? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to sort of start town planning for the business ends of my, my yeah, agency. Yeah, tail wagging the dog. Uh, yeah, I think it is a wee bit that way. Yeah, we do. We do. We work with a lot of uh, sort of uh, FMCG restaurants and, and stuff like that. Definitely. What does FMCG So fast moving consumer goods okay. uh, brands. And, and, what, and what's crucial to them? Because is it that the fact that a brand, once it becomes big, it no longer has the person who invented it. Do you know what I mean? It becomes a machine, as it were, and therefore the machine therefore needs someone who's going to bring these stories to life, you know, or... I guess it's just advertising. You, you know, the, the whole thing about social, I think when, when social first started, you it was a call to action. People put an advert up on Facebook and expected it to result in a click or something like that. But nobody expects that from the advert on the side of a bus or the advert on a billboard. They're just creating awareness. Mm. And the, and the, the proven effect of 
brand association is seeing the brand to start with. So I think an awful lot of it is getting using social to get your message out to your consumers. I mean, if you think about the way that advertising's moved, I mean, it's been revelatory. You know, we all carry around a six by three each item and look at it every 10 minutes, in which brands have the ability to put up whatever adverts they want. And But, you know, the very fact that everybody carries around something, looks at it, and you can tailor your advert to the person who's picking it up, it's an absolutely incredible thing. And I think that's really, that's why I got involved in, in, in Ghost. That's where I saw the potential. And, you know, luckily it's done incredibly well. And I think it's just the, the fastest growing, most fascinating area of, of the advertising industry. I saw a presentation the other day about advertising done by a guy, I, forget, I think it was Sarch or someone, one of the big advertisers. But he described how, you know, if you think of the great ads, like I follow great ads of the 1970s on Twitter. Mm. Oh, that's and, a good thing to follow. Oh, that's great. Oh. And some of those ads are whites. And things <laughs> Drink like it, you'll be a man. Yeah, all that. And the, 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 the Hamlet ads and the mannequin. Oh, the Hamlet ads. Yeah, I mean, there were just so many great advertising campaigns. Um, and yet, you know, maybe it's just one of these things we instinctively remember the past better than it actually was. But I look at some of the advertising campaigns that, that are around today, and in my opinion, they're just not as good. And, I um, mean, you know, the, the production values and that kind of thing is better. But this guy, I was listening to his presentation, he said 90% of advertising now is, whereas once upon a time you'd have a sort of creative director and 50, 60% of it would be his own judgment and whereas now over 90% of advertising is data-driven. Mm. And perhaps that's taken the soul out of advertising. The actual advertising of the product might be more effective than it was in the 1970s, which is ultimately what the product designer wants. But the actual sort There's of, lack of creative soul of advertising yeah, yeah. is gone. I might actually disagree with that because I think that programmatic does drive a lot of advertising, but it's just data and you're just using data. But advertising is much more disposable now. So the advertising agents of the... Don Drapers and Laters, you know, had time and cre creator crafted and power, advert. ability to yeah, get out there. But they they had time and money to to create a fantastic advert, and if it worked, we all remember it because it was a fantastic advert. And they have huge they have huge pride in it, and pat each other on the back and give each other awards. But frankly. It's different generation. You've got two seconds on the screen now. You know, you're going to look at that. You're going to move on. The advert itself actually still has to be really good because it's competing for attention with every single person on your feed. In the old days, you know, those adverts you remember was because we had one television yeah. Yeah, channel we showing seven. adverts. We all saw it and it sticks in your psyche. I think it needs to be better now because it actually you have so many yeah. drains on your attention for you to remember an advert. And there are a lot which are memorable and there are a lot which are good. They actually have to be really brilliant. The only thing is, and this is why my little agency exists, you can't add the same sort of adverts to a television programme, to a cinema programme, to a billboard, to your ad to your social feed. Sure, they can have a theme, but you have to remember your audience. You have to remember your audience's attention span, how long they'll see it. You know, you, you probably saw the R. White's advert 50 times okay. and smiled about it every time. 
if you see the same advert 50 times oh, on your Instagram feed, it's spam. It's spam after well, three. That, that's that thing I got that this once one you're again. shown the same advert over and again, whereas we were in the 70s and 80s, you would you would pass the point of annoyance and you'd start getting into it. It's what would happen. And as you say, they were beautifully crafted to just sort of be a yeah. bit cheeky, follow the bear, you know, just bizarre. Yeah. You know, uh, and you're right now, if I saw an advert 30 times, I'd be, are you saying I'd be like, You'd be fact? furious with I'd it. I'd be furious. It, it would be a spam. It'd be spam, spam after four. I've got the same one that comes up every time I watch a YouTube video. And it's a blonde guy. <laughs> Hi, if I want to transform my business, I, I think it's Wix. Is it Wix? <laughs> I don't know. And, that's and not us. But, uh, <laughs> but it, they've obviously got something that's decided I need this product and it's got absolutely no use to me. No, I can still I recite. haven't seen that one. So that is quite interesting. That's Maybe targeting. it's probably tailored to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's spam, and and the, the power of social advertising now is we can show you an advert, we see you've seen it three or four times, and then if you've engaged with it, clicked on it, or anything, then you get a completely different advert along that, but for the same product, for something you know, it's called retargeting, and you, you you find the next advert. But it's not just a matter of, you know, as I say, the old days of spending millions creating a. Coca-Cola advert and being desperately proud of it and sticking it through every channel that's possible. But to now stick it's it normalizing, isn't it? Because the, all the advertising prices are going sky high. You can spend FaceTime, Instagram, they're all charging you now. There's no natural metrics. So, you know, it, 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 it's reaching a sort of um, state of maturity, I guess, the advertising market and going back to how much can you spend? So the business models that were developed, that a lot of people, I have clients that have been very successful not spending money on Instagram, making a lot of money as a result of their excellent Instagram account, which got a lot of natural attention. And I know on Facebook in the music industry, everyone noticed when they changed things so that you had to pay in order to get likes. Otherwise you were posting stuff and you got 10,000 fans and people weren't liking it anymore. And you were like, what? So they're not being shown it. So you could, we have two types of, two types of reach. You have organic reach, which has got no pay put behind it. But it was about three years ago that Facebook moved the moved the metric and moved the algorithm to mean that you did have to pay. And, mm. you know, they're, they're, a, they're a company. They're a of, course, of, course, of course you have to pay. But the efficacy you get for a tiny spend mm. on a Facebook ad, on, on anything like that, is through the roof compared to a half-page advert on a on a yeah, yeah. newspaper. I thought the was very interesting. Clients using that this the way that you basically give it a thousand. You say these thousand people are the kind of people that I want to sell my product or I want to employ, and then they go okay, and they work out, and then they just do it on a say okay. Well, it turns out people who support Man U and also go to photography classes are your sorts of people. Basically, that sort of you know. Yeah, you you can do you can do all of that, but it's less. It's less um, Machiavellian than that, really. An awful lot of the time is you you sit, you know, we've got an advertising department to create an audience which we think would be suitable for an advert, but we can test it live. We can see what's working and, and, mm. and what's not. And you do pay to reach, but, you know, we, we've had, we, we did one, we, we do adverts for the World Avocado Association, which is the trade body for avocados. And they're really very, very good, and they do their they do their thing incredibly well. They're Mexican. Uh, no, I mean they're they're based effectively globally. The uh, well, there's one two exceptions, but anyway, um, we had one advert we did to them which featured an engagement ring 
stuck in the hollow of an avocado saying this is how I'd like to be engaged to. It reached 30 million people <laughs> organically. Now, just, By the way, when the you record, say organically, what does that mean? No money put behind it. Just through shares and lights reached. Because it was funny. Because it's funny. You would, have seeded it was, it. It. you would have seeded it to some nope, extent. No, nope, no. Nope, so you stuck just, it up on their site, which has a lot of followers. On their site, yes. What, a million followers? A hundred thousand? I don't know how many followers they have yeah, on their yeah. site off the top of my head. But Very you popular. just put, put, that, put that advert up because it's it was funny it was avocado slightly hipster culture whatever you mm. whatever you want to be to put 30 million into context if you bought one of the biggest adverts in uh, piccadilly circus it would take it would take four months before 30 million people saw it there mm. it's amazing so yeah and that's that's the efficacy of, that's the effect sorry i've got a sort of track record writing uh, little sketches and songs that have you know sometimes go viral and we wrote this song uh, for a leading um, uh, political chain of <laughs> uh, pubs. I'm not going to say who. <laughs> and that everyone loves, but it's got a slightly comical quality to it. And I approached the, the company and I said, look, if you give me X amount, because normally we're making the videos with no money, you know. And I said, if you give me a, a small amount of money to make this video, whereby we could make this video to a much higher quality, and we'd also make a few bob out of it as well. And I thought everyone's a winner here because they're going to get a free advert for their company, yeah. and I'm we're going to get we're going to make a little bit of money, and we're going to make a much better video. And they refused. And I remember thinking that was really short sighted of them. But people always mm. say, particularly big companies, because they can't make decisions because they've got collective decisions. I think that's what they happened. always say no initially. The big it is the longer it would take I need to, to get, get to the I need to get to the bottom. You need to, to find the a man or lady. Yeah, no, it is a man. Yeah. yeah. Social's difficult because a, a lot of people think you know, social is a young person's thing, therefore we'll just get one person who's a 23-year-old graduate. That's what they all do, and it's to, a disaster. To do social. And it is a disaster because they they actually it's a because it's so ubiquitous, mm. it makes it a much more complex subject. Than something to be great, to, to stand out. I mean, these are very broad things you do, Angus. I mean, it's, so, it's something I've always respected about you. I mean, social media, vice, entertainment industry, this end, you know, uh, money for property development. You know, that's that's pretty disparate. I mean, another thing you do is is the trustee thing. You you you're you're a trustee, which I I think even to me as an accountant, I've spent most of my life going, what the hell is a trust? You know, what what does it mean to be a trustee? You know, um, what is it is it is it a, is it a pleasurable thing to be a trustee? I really enjoy being a trustee. So so my background is in the sort of in in financial institutions and and industry before my my. <laughs> terminally short concentration span made me try and do lots of other things at the same time. But my background is very much in, in investment. And I guess sort of starting companies is investment anyway. You're putting money, but instead of, you know, other people's ideas, you're st getting properly stuck in and doing, doing it yourself and actually putting your money to work. But uh, yes, I am. I have got background in investment and a trust is actually a pool of capital. It's a pool mm. of capital ring fence for for the beneficiaries the beneficiaries of the trust aren't allowed to be active in the investment decisions so the person who creates the trust is called the settler and he will put together a large pool of money for the benefit of future generations effectively i guess it could be a, a pool of money it could be any you can have quite a small trust i guess yeah you could have quite a small trust yes i think 
the economics of working it, certainly to have independent trustees of it, etc., mm. and specialist trustees only dealing for that one. It needs to be a reasonably large pool of money. But what happens is that so the settler can create the trust. At which point... Settler's the person with lots of money, basically. Settler's the person with lots of money who wants to give it to the benefit of his children, grandchildren, whatever, and also doesn't want the risk of just giving them a huge pool of capital each where they both maybe do something. something. The best way, uh, my, my old man, uh, big him up, uh, but uh, he described to me a trust many years ago and it helped me and he said... A trust is like throwing a ball. So you can you can take this ball, this money, and you can throw it and you can aim. You can say, my aim for this trust, I want it to hit that building. I want it to be for my kids, help them out. And you write sort of things. But once it leaves your hand, it's left your hand. And now you don't control it. And that's the concept of trustee. It's, it, it, it's an absolute duty. It's a sort of, you know, you, you, you have to respect the wishes of this this thing. And I mean, trusts were created mostly for illegitimate children and for the, you know, some way to be able to pass money you know, down to people I may never meet or I can't publicly recognize, you know, as it were. Um, um, but I mean, in, in that duty, do you, do you find, do you, do you, you know, how do you learn to do that duty, I guess? Or, you know, it's just, you, you have to read the trust deed, I guess, is it? I have read the trust deeds. They're, they're even harder than your mortgage documents to go through. Oh, yeah. They are, they are complicated beasts. But the truth is that the, the analogy of the ball is absolutely right. You know, once it leaves your hand, you, you have no control over that. You and can set the param- no. You can set the parameters of what you want it to achieve, and the, then the trustees have to make sure that it achieves those goals, but independently. So the beneficiaries of the trust can't say, "I want this." The you know they can be within the trust deed. You can consider their requests at any one time, but your principal responsibility is. The deed of the mission. The, the mission of the trust. So you can say no to the trustees if it doesn't fit with that, and you should say no to the trustees. So effectively, if you look at trustee boards, traditionally they were made up of lawyers and accountants, <laughs> and it, I guess without being rude to lawyers or accountants, there was a general feeling that oh, well, lawyers and accountants understand investment. They do to a certain extent. No, no I don't but, think we do. Yeah, yeah not, being, not like not not because you're not an investor by trade. It's not your yeah, trade. I was being being a bit polite. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the role of trustees, and I was saying that effectively, you know, the, the lawyer and the accountant on the board. They were close to the settler, but actually, I'd say that you do need an investment expert in there because. The investment is actually the core of what's happening with the money. Of course, you you need to know that you're doing your accountancy and legal obligations. Therefore, there's every you should have accountants and trustees on there uh, as as it's trustees. It's good to have there. that knowledge in the room. It's Absolutely vital. But uh, the investment side, you know, investments a tricky tricky beast, and it moves very fast. How do you do it? it? I mean, I know that's a stupid question, but you you, you know, and I'm now going to jinx you for everything you do next, but. Are you following your gut? Do you sit down and you do your own little spreadsheet when you're making these decisions? I like this company and this, you know, because you've done very disparate thing. They're different industries, you know, all businesses are the same, but what do you, yeah. you, you follow a gut? It's about the people or? Yeah, I like, I don't, I like disruptors. I don't like doing anything. Disruptors, I don't like doing anything where you're just me too adding on. As soon as it's a, a big commoditized area, there's an awful lot of, 
very big, very But those are the more people. risky ones. Disruptors are risky. There's a thousand disruptors, you know. But is it, would you lean towards, if you see a business, do you lean towards a spreadsheet approach, a people approach, all of it? When I'm investing as, a, as an external investor, I think principally you look at the people, you look at how mm. good they are, because in a small company... It's the people who are going to make it happen. It's the, you, you back you back in entrepreneurs. You back people with drive. You back people who you think really really believe in it. Who are going to work twenty hours a day. Mm. Who have got all their skin in the game and have got a good idea and a good vision, but want to make it work. Ideas are ten a penny. It's just making them work that's difficult. Mm. So that's what I look at if I'm investing in a sort of small company or a startup. When I'm looking to start a company or do it myself. I mean, I know I'll bring that energy to it, but I want I want it to be in an area which is underserved, where there's an opportunity to do that, where, you know, the expression we used to use, never pick up pennies under a steamroller. Yeah, you know, because if you're trying to do join into an area where there's big big people getting involved, you might get away with it once or yeah, twice. Yeah, right. They'll get bored of you and stifle and kill you. I'm director of this um, Bitcoin company, Canada, as I said, and we... Our model is to find crypto deals that normal investors wouldn't be able to find, and then they buy our stock in the stock market in order to get exposure to these unique crypto deals. And so we're investing in these companies, and they like even if it's just like a couple of developers and a and a computer, they're all saying no. We have a seven million dollar valuation. <laughs> and then there was there was a London company that's got this fantastic thing, and it's basically turned, trying to turn itself into the Bloomberg of crypto. And he'd been working on this project for five years and it was already up and running and he was valuing in himself at a million. And there are these guys, you know, from elsewhere going, no, no, seven million. And then I'm talking to the other guys on the investment committee in the company and they're going, we have to, that's the Silicon Valley standard. Well, there's and other things. It's just, I think one of the reasons why America is so much more successful is A, it's got deep, in tech, A, it's got deeper pockets and less sort of inhibitory, inhibiting regulation. But also... It just ascribes, it gets tech in a way that Europe doesn't, and it ascribes it with a greater valuation. And as and greater valuations lead to greater valuations. Mm. But it's it's again, it's like the music industry. It's like you have one hit and nine flops, and what you know. And what and he was, I was saying, well, wasn't the value? He said the thing is with valuation, when we win, we win so big. Yeah, when you get it right, you, you know, it's a hundred times what, you know, and that's the sort of, the, 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 within their 10 investments, they'll hopefully have one of them. Yeah. And then it's all sort of bollocks, really, then as a result, because whether it was 5 million or 7 million or 10 million or 2 million, they're now at a billion. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, that okay. That is absolutely true. You know, the, you're going to make real money out of, if you make 50 investments, you know, you'll get smashed in most of them. You'll, God, break, even, you'll break, you run a break in, even in a few and you'll hit it out of the park in five, but they'll pay for absolutely everything. Um, and so that's how that's how the professional investors work in the in the tech sort of space. If you, if your house um, business is going well, is there a political aspect to this? I mean, housing is so political. Is it, would it have any value to you to meet, who would it be, the home minister or whatever and say... This is what we're doing. More people need to do it. We can show people what to do. But then you don't want... I mean, I mean this with great respect because, you know, it's not something you... It, it, it's a ridiculous statement. But it's the same time, you don't want to create competitors. But at the same time, there's this huge issue, isn't it? You know, so it's like... I, I, 
I like this business because it's got a very strong social aspect in it. Mm. We have a shortage of housing in this country. Households are shrinking. And you're doing something about um, it. I um, mean, not even to blow smoke up your you know, you're doing something. You know? really, really are. And I, I mean, I really care about this. You know, we are applying some lubricant to try and get it unblocked, to try and get the development sector moving again because... People need housing that we still have net migration. Huge where where are all the people, though? I mean, they're not all home. Where are all the people that haven't got housing? They say we've got this housing shortage of half a million. Is that half a million equals homeless? You can't no, be. No, no, I mean, no. They're in temporary housing, but they're in housing, therefore. Just make it permanent. I know I'm saying something stupid, but... Household size is increasing. You know, there's... Oh, there's, 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 ten in a, there's ten in a room. Yeah, yeah. And people not leaving home, people not able to afford it. And uh, Yeah, many more. If there's uh, what was a statistic I read. Um, I think the average age of a woman when she has her first child is um, 28... Uh, 20 years ago was 28. And of women having their first child when they were 28, uh, over 60% owned the accommodation in which they live. Mm. Whereas now, the average age of a woman having her first child has gone up for numerous different reasons. And the number, uh, uh, so the age is higher and the amount that actually own the property that they live in has gone below 40%. Now, if you think, you know, wow. having a having a child and owning your own house, they're all sort of they're not the same thing, but a lot of people don't want to have a kid until they own their own house. And so it's a self-reinforcing, you know, it's all part of the the nesting and, and they don't never feel quite as permanent in rented accommodation. And, you know, they can always, with the short-term tenancies, you can always be kicked out and all these things. So, you know, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, like, again, I listened to this talk by Liam, who's written this book about it. You know, he describes his dad, who was an Irish migrant and who just bought like the most ordinary house uh, in Wembley in the 90s or, or, or Kilburn or somewhere up there in the 1960s. But the fact is he bought a house and this Irish mm. bloke regards it as the most successful thing he had ever achieved in his life. Baby and it gave him incredible feeling of self-respect. Yeah. And that's just being lost on a whole, yeah, and, and value. You know, London is not without space. I'm, I'm not just talking, I'm not saying we build over our green parks and situation, but builders are better at putting more, more units into smaller spaces and making them very livable. It's not a matter of just cramming people into tiny places. You just need to unlock the, the logjam, allow them the capital to do it. So at the end of the day, it tends to be what gets everything moving is making capital available. How did you, like if you're lending to house builders, how where did you raise the capital to lend or are you, you borrowing and lending it on? How does that work? No, we're not borrowing. So what we're doing, we're actually, so we're quite, quite new. We just got our FCA clearance and what we're doing is we're raising a fund Okay. So we are going to... And will this be publicly listed or...? No, it won't be. It's actually um, it, it, it's actually a closed-ended fund. So what we're going to do is we're going to raise a pool of capital, um, maybe 200 million. We raise that for, from pension funds, from local authorities, from professional investors. That gets locked in for a five-year period. So we invest it for... It takes maybe a year and a half to invest it. We're then revolving the loans. It keeps getting invested. And then at the end of five years, that gets returned to the investors plus the accrued 
profits we've made or the, the interest we've made over that period. And what do you expect to have made to make? We're aiming at a return of seven and a half to nine percent per annum. And what rate will you be lending at? It varies, but the 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 rate will be higher than the high street. Well, to do seven and a half to nine, you're probably needing to be returning between eleven and twelve percent, which sounds like a sounds like sort of usury rates, but it's not because for the developer, they're only getting the money when they use it. So you casually described there, we're going to raise two hundred million from pension funds. Now that to me seems like an extraordinary amount of money, and I, you know I've tried to raise money <laughs> for various business ventures over the years, pounds and I've never got past about fiver. But the uh, <laughs> maybe that's because people know me too well. But I mean, is that easy to raise that kind of money? No, what? no. It's I mean, you have to have a very viable po- proposition with an established team. Uh, you have that you go through an awful lot of due diligence for them to understand that uh, you do it. As you as a bit as people in a business as people, you know what you do. We're FCA regulated. Mm. We are fully fully um we we're, we're vetted on every level. We have yeah. to prove that we've done it. Um it's it's not easy raising that level of money at all, but we are professionals and we're cre- creating we're catering to the professional world. So we are not catering for private. How do investors. they find you? How do they find you? Um, there we have a company whose job who we work with, and their job is to do what's called capital introduction to bring capital in. And they will ring up house builders or not? Is- oh, that's the other side. So how do we find investors or how do we how find, do you find about- house builders? We work with originators, so we don't. Uh, so we, there are certain originators out originators, there. Originators—that's a profession, is it? Yes, the kind of their job is to go and find uh, people wanting to borrow money for these developments, because literally knocking on doors, almost going to house builders and saying, "Where's your next one?" Having a relationship with house builders, you yeah, know, the yeah. person building five, ten houses in Southampton isn't going to be walking down Victoria Street. You know, he is going to be in there. The originators go and find find these loans. They then create the relationship with the end developer. The, the originator will bring the proposition to us. They might bring several to us. We do all our due diligence on that underlying borrower. We do all the credit checking. We take, we have a list of metrics as long as you're on, they have to comply with. And if it's, if they, if they go through all of that, then they'll qualify for us. Yeah. Okay. So, so it would take, what, what would it take start to finish for a, for a house builder to get approval? And once you've got approval, I guess you've done one project and then the next time you'd be more chilled and. It's very unlikely we'll lend to you if you're a first time developer. Oh, okay. You know, you, of course. You, you will, you will have Too done developments before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but there's two steps of due diligence. They go through the originator's due diligence and then they go through ours. And, and where, is, where are the pressure points in the country? Are the developers more up? Where, where do we need houses most at the moment? Everywhere. Everywhere. Cities? Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, everywhere need, needs housing. Wow. Um, there's a huge spread of, spread of places. I mean, I, well, we need 300,000 a year, I guess, given yeah. the immigration. Well, basically. that's actually, that is pretty much the number that that got raised in the Commons the other day, 330. The government's official forecast is, I believe, 200, and we've been building 180,000. Oh, so there's a yeah. huge structural shortfall, and it's just getting worse. Yeah. Hmm. One of the biggest problems, I'm going to give you your amazing statistic to leave this podcast with oh. now, which is that, and I'm going to make you guess, of... 
this is from the 2011, so it's slightly out of date, but the 2011 National Ecosystem Assessment. National Ecosystem. Not including roads, how much of of the of England and Wales is built on? Scotland's going to be less still, isn't it? I'm going to Scotland, s- Scotland is 3%. Less, yeah. I, I'm going to say 12%. 12 from you, 3 from you. Why did you guess 12? Just finger in the air. And why did you guess 3? Because it's three times the, the, the I don't know. <laughs> Was there a reason or were you just... Well, it's three times all of the roads and everything. That's a shitload of land. Okay. You know, so, so, and I know it's going to be low. I think it's okay. going to be, cause even so, though we're Britain. Including roads... It's four percent. Yeah. Excluding roads, it's two percent. Oh, wow. Of which one percent is commercial property and one percent is domestic property. So you could, and that's excluding gardens. But so you could excluding technically gardens. double the supply of domestic property in the UK, in England and Wales, and only build on one percent of land. Wow. But that's one of those perspective wow. things, you know? I think that's quite a big statistic. It's an amazing statistic. Yeah, it's and an if amazing you look statistic. at you just need to look at Google Maps, you know, go back on Google, Google Earth or whatever it's called, and look at the UK. It's all green. You know, and it's well, and it's it? not and it's not like it's really treasured woodland and no. stuff. Most of it's just generic farmland, which is of no real environmental True. value. Big Maybe there is in the hedgerows around the actual field, but the field itself is just one crop. And it's one of the great stupidities. And the big villain in all this is the Town and Country Planning Act of 1948. Do you think so? Yeah. Is that the um, um, green space? uh, No, green... green, uh, green Greenbelt. The whole Greenbelt thing, I think, I'm I'm, I'm not great on Greenbelt. It's a bit of a red herring. But I do know that over the last half generation, the the amount of Greenbelt land has doubled in the UK. That's good. So there's no shortage of greenbelt. But, you know, in my opinion, I distinguish between farmland and, you know, moorland and wildland and forest and woods because, to me, we shouldn't impinge on those because, you know, there aren't that many. And, and also we've got more forest land than we've had in, I think, in 100 years. But what is of no value is just, you know... Field. Rape fields, yeah. cornfields. Especially when they're being paid to keep fallow. And it's, yeah, it's and, just and a lot of the time shit. they're paid by the EU, uh, you know, subsidised anyway. They're not economic. So um, on that bombshell, <laughs> Angus, tell us how we can find out more about you and tell us uh, how we invest, how we can contribute to your 200 million <laughs> <laughs> fundraise. Annoyingly, I can't because uh, the rules of the FCA say we're sure. not allowed to. We can only uh, market to professional investors. Um so, and sadly not, but it, it is a it is a very interesting area. Ghost, very you, could, you could say tell ghost, about, ghost is you and Give us your Twitter handle and ghost's Twitter handle and all that kind of thing. Certainly, well, ghost is uh, gho5t.com and uh, please do get in touch with me if you're remotely interested in, in that. It's a, it's a very interesting area. And uh, what can I say? My Instagram is uh, gusty, gusty, gusty. There we are. Oh, wow. I'm not even on Instagram. (laughs) Ladies and gents, thank you very much for listening. Uh, My name's Dominic Frisby, and uh, I was sitting with... Andy Ory. And uh, join us again next time. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you can join Andy Ory and me, Dominic Frisby, for the next episode of Business Without... (laughs) 